0: All right. If you'll uh, turn again there to Hebrews chapter number three, uh, that's our place for message today. And also, uh, if you're a guest, we invite you to fill out a connect card. You would put it in the basket on the left, going out as a way of us uh, having some information to get to know you better. And we would appreciate that very much. And the text today, the message is. called The Household of God, and let me pray for us. God, I'm so grateful for the Bible. Thank you for how it's been given to us, and it's inspired, and it's timeless and relevant, and I pray, uh, thanking you that it's living and powerful, and we pray that you'll use it today to change and transform us, to give us uh, stability, God, to give us a foundation, and to help us to see the world the way that you see it, and to behave in it the way that you've called us to, and we love you. Thank you for your great love for us, and we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, we've been going verse by verse through Hebrews, and uh, that's called exposition, and uh, it's the approach that I learned when I was trained in school, and uh, it's helpful, I think, because it causes us to, um, it gets me away from my opinion, you know, my opinions may be uh, important to me, but God's opinion uh, is most important to all of us, wouldn't you say? That's what I would say, more important than my opinion for sure, and what we're seeing in Hebrews, we uh, said the series is Jesus is better, Jesus is better, well better than what? Well, when we go through the passage, what you see is that it offers up a lot of things Jesus is better than, and in the message this week, what we see is that Jesus is better than Moses. That's kind of the uh, idea that we find, that Moses was a, a builder and, and had a role to play, but when it when we understand clearly who the Messiah is, that Moses was a player, a part in what God was doing, but Jesus is what God was doing. And so that's what we'll see in this message today is kind of this contrast. Already we've seen Jesus compared to angels, and we saw that Jesus is superior to the angels in that he created them, and he, he is the creator, and they're part of the creation. And here we see Jesus being compared to what for the Jewish thinker in the first century would have been the one of the architects of their faith system. And so he, he doesn't do anything here that I think is an insult to uh, the idea of what Moses was or who he st- you know what he stood for, but it's just a way of helping us think of the overarching narrative that God was giving us in Scripture. There was a story that God had been telling from the very beginning, and the first opening pages of Scripture, and he continued to tell. And Moses was a part of that story, but but Jesus is the story. There's a uh, passage of Scripture in the Psalm that says, Psalm 67:4, "Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you uh, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth." It's interesting when you think of God judging the world or the people with equity. The word would have the idea of fairness, that God's fair and just in how he judges. We think of ourselves, I think, I don't want what I deserve. You know, I know myself well enough to know that I'm inconsistent and uneven. I wish I was perfect, but unfortunately, I am not. I want to be moral. I want to be an ethical human being. But I also know that at my worst moments that I've strayed from God's best for me. And and you may think poorly of me in saying that, but if you think about yourself, what does the Bible say? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there's not one righteous, not even one. So all of us it, it would have to say, hey, that's me too. So if God judged me in the way that I deserve to be judged, I would be condemned. But instead, when the Bible talks about God judging us with equity, what it means is, he judged his his son in our place, and consequently, the, what happens isn't fair. Because if it was fair, I would get my just condemnation, but I don't get that. If I place my faith in Jesus, what I get instead is forgiveness and grace and the goodness of God. That because Jesus Christ became for us that way, that God works equitably. You know, in our life and in our relationship with him and that's reason for thanksgiving and praise the fact that God has behaved that way toward us and then the, is that he guides us and so when I read the Bible I, I remember like how things started to really become clear to me well, I mean I'd been in ministry for a long time and I was preaching through Genesis on a Sunday night at a church I was a pastor of and, and you can begin to see so clearly the fact that this isn't random, what life is, and what God was doing spiritually, is that God was telling a story from the very first human beings until the time that Christ came, and even today, you know, God is telling a story uh, in human history, and that story is about his son, from beginning to end, and the very first, we hear, they sometimes talk about the uh, the way that the gospel appears in the book of Genesis, when God talks to the those people, and he talks to the serpent, and he says, he'll, uh, you'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. And in that, uh, it says talks about the seed of a woman. And we're like, well, whoever heard of that? Whoever heard of a woman uh, having within her complete and entire the capacity for life and given birth, but God was picturing for us the coming Messiah who would be born of a virgin, and you get that in the very opening chapters of the book of Genesis. So God was telling a story. It was about his son, but it didn't leave us out. It included us. We're part of the story that he's telling. I was uh, talking earlier with someone about a Christian band I got introduced to through a book I was reading, a guy named Robbie Say, Robbie Say Band. And he has a song that says, go outside and praise the God who put the stars up in the sky. That's what he says. And he, he says, and... Uh, let me see if I can read my writing. Gather around with those who love uh, and sing. You are our king. Uh, and he, and the other thing he says as part of the course is no one should be left out. No one should be left out. And when I think about that song, what it's communicating is that God's purpose for each human being is that we would become worshipers. It's it's not complicated. Have you seen those uh ATT commercials that say it's not complicated? God's purpose isn't complicated. It is that each and every human being would become a worshiper. Well, obviously, in the world that we are a part of now, it is not the case that every person is a worshiper. I mean, they worship something, but they don't worship the God who created and, and made them for a relationship with, with himself. So, his, But what we do know is his intent is that no one would be excluded from the opportunity to be a worshiper to know God and to worship God. And he deserves to be worshiped because he's rescued us. He created and sustains life and all good things, uh, James says, every good and perfect gift comes from above from the Father of lights who neither varies nor changes. So because God is good, because he created us, he deserves our worship. He deserves for you and I to wake up and each day that we live and breathe for us to express our worship in the way that we, we are as acknowledging him as first. And the scripture says that when we put God first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. All the things that we need come into focus when we put God first in our life and we make him the object of our worship and the priority of our existence. That's what he intends for all of us. Is that that's what our life would look like, how it would be ordered. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That, I love that. that. Nobody should be left out of that. God's goodness wants to extend to any human being who will just recognize he is what they need and that he transforms life when we bring life to him. So that's what we see, uh, and and we're getting over and over again various portraits of Jesus in Hebrews. Today we've just got another portrait, another way of kind of walking through the hall and seeing. Oh, there here's what Jesus is like. Who here's who he is to us, and in this case he's uh, the the story that God is telling. In, in comparison to someone else who also was a part of that story but pointing us toward Christ. And so he's building for us. That's what the last part of this passage says. We're a, ha- we're a household, his household of faith. Or uh, In verse 6 it says, as the son, the son is over his own house, whose house we are. Sounds like what Peter said in uh, First Peter when he talked about we're living stones and we're build, uh, built up into a, a, a house together. So we each fit and we're each called and we're each a part of what God is uh, doing in building a family and in building a household. So what I want to think about in this message is Ways that God is building us into a household of faith. What can we see in this pic, uh, picture that we're given in Hebrews about who we are, our identity, and how we have been affected by Jesus in, in his claims? The first uh, part of this passage that we see is that he builds us into a household of faith when we're seriously affected by Jesus, seriously affected look at the the verse uh, verse one there first verse therefore holy brethren partakers of the heavenly calling consider it says consider the apostle and high priest of our confession christ jesus when that word consider is packed in with a lot of meaning and it it means to look attentively at to look closely at jesus Consider, reflect on, keep him as the foremost object of our worship and our and our understanding of God's purpose. Consider, have your. There was a a Puritan pastor, and he was responsible for impact in North American Christianity in a, a powerful way. Jonathan Edwards, who he described the idea of what it means to be affected. He, he talked about religious affections. And and what he meant was the, the idea of priority, the idea of God being first. And so when we think about that, Jesus is described interestingly here as the apostle of our faith as an aspect of it. And we think, well, Jesus was an apostle. Well, well the word means one sent forth with a message. That's what the word apostle, apostle meant. A messenger, a person sent forth with a message. And so in that regard, certainly Jesus was an apostle. He was definitely sent uh, forth with the most important message, the message that told us about God's heart for us, the message that told us about God's desire for for us. And so he's certainly a, a messenger. And a high priest is one of the big ideas in Hebrews that we'll continue to see. But there, a priest was a person who represented God to people, and he also represented people to God. So Jesus is the high priest. He's called in 1 Timothy the mediator. He's the one that stands in between, but not to obstruct, to help. He stands in between to help us to God. And so he's the high priest. He represents God to us perfectly because he's God in human form, and he represents us to God in that he became for us the, the atoning sacrifice for sin, and the one who we've already sung about is resurrected. And so that's who Jesus is, and that's the portrait that we see and how he's building us up. He says "In uh, here, holy brethren, is how we're described. Do you think of yourself as holy? We've already talked about what scoundrels we are, right? Or I admitted that anyway. But we think about ourselves. The Bible says about you, Here, it calls you holy, holy brethren. Saints, that's the word. Saints. Do we think of ourselves, is that our understanding of who we are? Well, the Bible says God in Christ pronounced us holy. There's a sense in which you are holy, even with your inconsistency, positionally. Positionally. Because Jesus... The way it puts it in Colossians, and we've seen the scripture often, it says he t- he canceled the handwriting of offenses that was against us, that was contrary to us. In other words, God is. We talk about God being omniscient; God knows everything because He's God, so He knows everything about us. And the, and the Bible says there was a handwriting of offenses that was contrary to us. All those things that we know it, about ourselves, our regrets, and the ways that we've transgressed God's moral uh, boundaries and standards. And it says he took, he erased, scrubbed out that list of things that were objectionable to holy God. He took them away. And consequently, what God sees about you, listen, is that you are cleansed and forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Aren't you glad? As far as the east is, from the west, never do they meet. That's what it's saying. Infinity. Beyond the capacity of the human to imagine, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. Man, that's reason for happiness. That's a reason to wake up every day optimistic, that God sees you. As your sins have been scrubbed away and cleansed because of your faith in Jesus, that he took away the handwriting of offenses that was contrary to us. And so positionally, we're saints. We're holy is the way the uh, scripture puts it. And that's uh, why God can write your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's what God says he does for people who belong to him. He writes your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's indelible nobody can take you out of his hand, not because, and and this is the thing, it's, if it were based on our performance, we'd be uneven, we'd be up, we'd be down. If it was based on the idea that there is some checklist of moral things that I'm doing that keep me in God's favor, but that's not how it works. It's not a do uh, faith, it's a done faith. Aren't you glad? If it's a do faith, I get up every day and I'm like slaving and I'm working and I'm trying to figure out whether I've done enough. If it's a done faith, it rests on Jesus and not on me. And I'd much rather have my faith rest on Jesus than on me. So our holiness is positional in the sense that Jesus has canceled the offenses in his cross. He took it on himself. He willingly accepted our judgment, but also... It's practical. When it calls us holy brethren, we do know that uh, the Bible says be holy. You be holy because I'm holy. So there's a sense in which we are l- trying to live a life that is as a worshiper and a witness and it honors God. Even in our uneven evenness and even in our inconsistency, the trajectory has changed in our life and the direction. Repentance is the idea that I've turned away from a, a lifestyle that was against God. I've stopped being a rebel. I'm on God's side because he made me on his side. And we're moving in a different direction. Repentance means that I wake up every day with the determination. If there's something between me and God, I want to get it right. And I want to keep walking with him and, and living for him. And so there's a practical, there's a positional holiness. We're named saints by God. He sees us that way. There's a practical holiness in in which we get up and we love our neighbor, right? We commit to do good things in the name of the one who's rescued us out of our misery, and who's given us hope. And so in that way, holiness is something that we aspire to. uh, This passage should be familiar to us, too. It's in Philippians 2. Verses 12 through 13, where Paul says, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words, he says, I'm not with you now. I'm not watching you, but even so, you should keep doing this. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He said, what, I'm working out my, I'm not working for my salvation, but I am working it out in everyday kinds of experiences. In traffic, okay, that's probably where I uh, really need to commit to um, practical holiness. But in all kinds of situations that we're in all the time, there the idea of holiness is: what would God want? What would He want in this? What kind of person would He have me be in this situation? So when He calls us holy brothers or sisters, as you know, in other people's cases, it is to remind us that there is something unique in who who we've become in Jesus. So he he builds us in holiness. He builds us in our calling. It says in verse 3 there, partakers of the heavenly calling. That's what it's saying about your purpose and identity. You are called, beckoned. you're, You're enlisted now into a new way of life, a new way of being. So we're partakers of a heavenly calling. I like how it's rendered in the message. It says companions and following, this call to the heights. There's a, we're pilgrims. We're journeying through life. We're putting one foot in front of the other with a new identity and mindset. And, and that's God's best for all of us. And we're fortunately doing it together. You know, God didn't intend for any single one of us to be a church. You know, We're not supposed to flesh this out without other people. He puts us in community. And I, I thought, well, community is kind of an overworked word, but also a needed reality. We, we hear community, community, community. This church is called Grace Community Church. It's for the community of believers inside, but for the community outside too. But community is kind of an overworked idea, but it's also a needed reality. You need people. You need family. You need brothers and sisters that are doing this alongside you, that are encouraging you, and that you can uh, help and be helped by. And so God put us in family, and that's the idea of being built up into a household of faith. He didn't leave us stranded And we have friends in faith, and we should avail ourselves to them. That's God's idea, that we have family, we're connected, and that we have to avail ourselves to that. We have to commit to that. We've talked about that recently, that you have to leave home sometimes to be with other followers of Christ. It's great that we can do this online. It was very helpful for a season, but it's not an uh, it's not a replacement for relationships. It wasn't intended to be the technology is helpful and awesome, but it's no replacement for human beings. I love uh Rick Warren wrote a book called Purpose Driven Life, and he has such helpful stuff in there about Christian community. He says it's really easy to uh, fool ourselves into thinking we're holy when we're not around people. <laughs> he says, but being with other people is really the proof of our uh, practice of holiness. That we, I like how one guy, he said, we need each other. He says, we're like porcupines. We need each other and we needle each other, he says. We need each other, but also because we're humans, we can sometimes be prickly. And it can be hard. But nobody said Christian community would be easy. I didn't read that in the Bible anywhere, actually. But we, we need each other. And it's it can be challenging. The uh, here's, here's what I was thinking about recently. God is invisible. No one has seen God at any time except for when God was manifest in the flesh, when Jesus was here. But Jesus isn't here in person. I haven't bumped into him in Walmart lately. It was 2,000 years ago that Jesus had a human existence and God is invisible. And so we commit to that how? By faith, right? Your life is characterized by faith if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. It is central. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, the Bible says. For those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who carefully seek him. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So because I'm following him by faith, it is easy to become disillusioned. Committing to something that's invisible, to someone who absolutely with all my heart I believe in because I see the evidence all around, but it's still something that can uh, lead to disillusionment, uh, disillusionment at times for people it's possible to neglect the urgency that that he deserves and the devotion that he deserves because we follow him who is to us presently invisible and Jesus who was on the earth 2,000 years ago and who ascended and was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago. And we may be subject to apathy. I see a lot of that in these days. Apathy. Don't care as much as we're supposed to care. How can we not care as much as we're supposed to care if Jesus is who we believe him to be? You know, that's that should move us toward deep caring, affection for for him that shows up in our life in tangible ways, in real ways that others can be affected by as well. So we're called to witness to his glory. I thought about Job. He's been on my mind a lot lately. We, uh, we've Mentioned him in the message last week, how that Job was devastated on a personal level, right? When you read the book of Job, his family is taken, his wealth is a, is taken, he he's sorrowful, and then he has, you know, we talked about that last week. How his wife says, "Why do you continue to trust in God? Why don't you curse God and die?" <laughs> you know, so he's encouraged on the home front, right? He has all the these, his children die. His livelihood is affected. His personal health is affected. And all he does is says, uh, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the Bible says, In all of the devastating disappointment, Job never sinned against God by blaming him with his mouth. It's like we, we get so frustrated sometimes. We lose confidence in our faith system and we can feel like, man, I'm just going to withdraw. It's not worth it. And I look at Job and the Bible says and all of the devastating personal things that happened in his life, he never blamed God. He kept being a worshiper. It was hard because he had terrible friends you know, and a wife that maybe it just wasn't her best moment. I don't know. But he kept He kept committing through everything to humbly walk with God. And so I think God's will for you and me is that we flesh out the uh, petition of the Lord's prayer that says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's his purpose, is that when we think about what he's building into our life, that it's centered in Jesus and it's supposed to be, uh, something that stimulates us to uh, faithfulness in him. And then we're, we we pay attention to him. We consider him, the passage says. And how do we not? Because the Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll be saved. So we remember that. The confession that put us in God's family is not Bobby is Lord, right? Not any of you, if you put your name in there. It's Jesus is Lord. And so we continue to commit to that reality. That's the confession that we, we made in the beginning that continues to call us into community and, and faithfulness. But also here, secondly, he builds us into a household of faith as we understand the panorama of God's historic plan. I like that word, panorama. It's like there's that overarching story that God's been telling. So he pulls in Moses as a way of illustrating this story. He compares. So let's think about Moses for a little while from the scripture. I think the mistake that it would be easy to make is to say there were two archetypes in the Bible, Jesus and Moses. But Moses, the Old Testament archetype. Jesus, the New Testament archetype. That's not what it's saying. Moses was central and vital in the story that God was telling, only in the sense that he pointed to Jesus. That's how he shows up. But think about Moses. He's called as a servant to God. And he is, uh, we remember how as a a baby he was born into a time historically when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt and that uh, Pharaoh saw that the people were becoming so numerous that they multiplied so much as a nation within uh, the nation of Egypt, where they had come to live. You remember Joseph went there and Joseph a great, became a great man in his family. the patriarchs came and settled there and lived there. And while Moses was or excuse me, you know, while Moses was there and his family and, uh, and Joseph, the, the Pharaoh was kindly related to Joseph. But then as the people multiplied over a number of years, uh, hundreds of years, then he began to be paranoid and suspicious that these people might become so powerful that they could overthrow the nation of Egypt. And so he went to the midwives. And he, you remember that? He says to the midwives, every male son that is born, I want you to immediately kill him." So imagine being a mom who has a male baby. And, and the idea is that, you know, we're not going to let the males live because we've got to somehow slow this proliferation of human beings that are being born that threaten us. So we see the idea of uh, satanic opposition to life is not a new thing, right? It's been around for a long, long time. But these, the, the midwives refused, like, we're not, we're not going to kill these babies, and when pharaoh comes back and he says what's going on here I thought I gave you a command he said well see the hebrew women are not like your egyptian women they give birth very quickly so that by the time they call us we can't even get there to to uh kill the the boy children and so moses is born into that environment and his mother realizes that him being a living hebrew child in that situation is There's the sentence of death over her little baby. In in the narrative, she takes him and puts him into a basket in the Nile River. And as it so happens, right, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river and sees that little ark with that little baby inside and rescues that baby and takes him to raise. And someone within her household says, would you like me to go and find a Hebrew woman to be a nursemaid to this baby? Well, yeah, that would be pretty good. Who does she get? Moses' mother, right? How ironic. So fascinating the way that God is at work in this story to rescue and deliver. He takes Moses into, she takes Moses into her household, and he is raised in Pharaoh's household with the privilege and everything that goes along with that for 40 years and the Bible says as an adult this is in Hebrews later on in chapter 11 that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt for he looked to the reward what did Moses know about Christ? That was what we would think. Moses was thousands of years before Christ, but it says in the scripture that he esteemed that identity with Christ more than the passing pleasures of sin or the riches of Egypt. So what would have been the passing pleasures of sin? Well, really for him, just the possibility of a life of power, the possibility of a life of indulgence, the possibility of it, everything that went along with his position, he rejected it and chose instead an identification with the people of God and with Christ because he's part of the story that God is telling about the coming Messiah. And so he turns his back on that. And the Bible says also in uh, when you read through Exodus that he fled Egypt because he saw one of the children of Israel being abused by uh an Egyptian, and he intervened and he killed that person. And then later on, he found out that he hadn't done that in the way that he thought. He was discovered, and he was breaking up a fight between two Hebrews. and And the guy says, well, "Basically, what does this got to do with you? Do you intend to kill me like you did that Egyptian?" And he's like, "Well, it's hit the fan." So he he flees to Midian, and while he's in Midian, he becomes at a At 40 years of age, he goes to work for a man named Jethro, and he marries his daughter. And while there, he's a shepherd for 40 years. So at 80 years of age, Moses comes into the most significant work of his life. How about that? Sometimes we think, I've wasted everything. It's all blown and thrown away. No, 80 years old, this man came into the most significant work of his life. And God began to use him in a, in a weird way, okay? When you read the story, he sees a bush that's on fire. An angel appears, it says, and, and there's a bush that's on fire, but it's not consumed. And he says what any of us would say, this is weird, I'm going to go check that out. You know, Let me draw near and see what's going on here. And while he's there, he's told, you take your sandals off your feet because the place that you are standing is holy ground and he hears from god and he's commissioned by god to go back to egypt at 80 years old and to become for them the deliverer the one who is going to take them out of slavery and out of bondage and is going to make help them become a nation the he, the hebrews the israelites so the process god's telling this story he's weaving it into experiences and moses goes back to Egypt, and he he's asked God, he says, who shall I say sent me? And you remember God says to him uh, the God of Abraham, the God of, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that's who you say is sending me. And so he says my name is I am that I am. I always like that too because it means basically I exist without your help. I'm before everything. I am is who he says sent me. I am. And then Jesus says, "Before Abraham was, I am." He says, which we'll get to. But he, in, in the book of Acts, Stephen says the first martyr. He, he, Stephen is the first martyr of the church, and he summarizes, <clears throat> excuse me, Moses' calling and ministry in this way: He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is the Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. So Stephen, in the book of Acts, after Christ is crucified, buried, and ascended, tells the story of Moses in preaching the gospel to a group of people who are about to kill him and did and did stone him to death. And he says, Moses points to Jesus. Moses says that there will be a prophet who will be raised up after me, and you'll hear him. And that's who he's talking about. Clearly, in the context, is Jesus That that is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18.15. And so Jesus is pictured here as the builder, as the son. Moses servant. Jesus is the builder. <clears throat> and he says, everyone, Moses was a, a servant in God's house, but he says that house is built by Jesus. He's the builder. He's the one who's over everything. So he he is first before Abraham was, I am. He could have said before Moses was, I am, because Abraham even preceded uh, Moses. But he takes the latent possibility and makes it a completed reality. When we follow the analogy of a builder, okay, I live in a giant neighborhood. It's mostly not under construction now. But it was not uncommon to drive through our neighborhood and see uh, rafters, what do you call it, trusses and building material and to see concrete trucks in and out of our neighborhood for a long time and now all over Effingham, right, you see that. But you don't see a bunch of lumber out on a job site and think, huh, you know, if we just wait long enough, that's going to become a house, right? No, no. You don't go, okay, like given enough time, the probability may be no, we know that if there's uh if there's material there's a builder there's latent possibility that it the only way that it becomes a house is for there to be uh, someone who puts their hands to that, and the Bible says that the one who built everything is God, and God was building through this these human beings this reality that we sort of now take for granted in the fact that Jesus came, but all along God was weaving together this powerful narrative that that eventuates in Jesus' arrival, and so Moses is worthy of recognition. <clears throat> he is no lightweight, okay? This is uh, at least, what, 3,500 years past when Moses was on earth, and we're still talking about him. So he, he's not a lightweight, but Jesus is the focal point of all that Moses stood for. And that's why he's saying to a group of predominantly Jewish people, look, he's not the archetype. He's a part of what God's doing, but Jesus is the pinnacle. Jesus is the Savior who is to come. He's the prophet of whom Moses was speaking. And so God built everything, and God is the one who's weaving this together. And the third idea we see in this passage that talks about God's household, excuse me, is that he builds into a household of faith, us, as we persevere in faith because of God's faithfulness. Isn't that an interesting way of thinking, like what this passage says as it concludes? Because it talks about perseverance in the very end there. It says, uh, uh, who's... If we hold fast, that's a condition, right? If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of our hope, firm to the end, he says, that's how we know we're his house that we persevere. Well, the good news is that God causes us to persevere if we truly belong to Him. He He is the one who holds us and won't let us go, and that's good news. That's how I think about how God sees us. I was reading or reflecting on Hebrews eleven recently, and Hebrews eleven. It's called the Hall of Fame of Faith. If you go and read it, it just gives a definition of faith. It, uh, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's the definition it gives. And then the other one we talked about earlier. And then it starts illustrating through the lives of people like Sarah. Do you remember Sarah, Abraham's wife, that had a baby as an elderly person? I've joked around before that Abraham went out to get uh pens and diapers at the same time, you know. He comes home with diapers and it's like, but how does Sarah view the idea of being a mother when she's told she's going to be a mother? You remember how she responded? She laughed, right? Like impossible. No way that somebody my age is having a baby, but she had a baby. And we think about Abraham. Abraham at times misrepresented his relationship to his wife do you remember that as you read about Abraham I mean it doesn't seem very noble to to say she's really not my wife she's my uh, sister and to do it to protect yourself he did that but when you read about him in Hebrews he's pictured as a hero of faith and I thought about how that God views our failures with kindness that uh, he regards our faults with mercy, our defects, our faults. That's worth remembering. When I read Hebrews chapter 11, what I see is that God doesn't really bring up these people's uh, defaults or defects, I should say, their faults, their problems. He views them as people who just were kind of consistently plotting and were faithful and who were like us, you know, Struggling at times, but continuing to follow God's purpose and plan in their life. And guess what? There are no other people than those kinds of people. That's the only kind of people there are. But I really love in the Bible that when God looks at those people, he is very generous regarding their faults. That's good news. That's worth remembering. And he doesn't require perfection but faithfulness because that's what he says in the scripture in verse number 5. He says, uh, indeed, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things to come. And and we see that we're charged and encouraged to faithfulness, but faithfulness is not perfection. It's continuing to put one foot in front of the other in obedience to God as a person of prayer and scripture and service and so Moses was faithful. He persevered. His, If you read Exodus, which is, a, you know, of course it's in the Bible, it's phenomenal. But he was, the people at times wanted to stone him to death. The very people that he had come back to rescue when they go out into the desert. Remember, they want to kill this poor man. All he did was line up and listen to their complaints. I had them line up and listen to their complaints and judge them with equity every day. And they just want to stone him, you know. And his own sister and brother at a point try to create a mutiny. And God continues to advocate for Moses. And, uh, you know, so he's he's faced with threats and difficulty. And not only that, but again, when we think about the people in the Scripture, his own, uh, when he assessed him on his own self, he knew that he was not adequate. You know, he knew that he, he was given to bouts of anger. We see it at a time place in the scripture, how his anger caused him not to be able to go into the promised land. So a perfect person? No. But how does the Bible characterize him? Faithful. He continued to follow God. He, he continued to believe. He continued to follow him. He continued to consistently model o- obedience and faithfulness to God even though he stumbled along again like the rest of us. So, our faithfulness is a testimony to God's reality in his transforming power. And then, I think in this passage, we see the final thing is about Jesus, that he's faithful not as a servant, but as a son. He is a servant. You know, it, it says that he was uh, here uh, as a son over his house, so contrasted to Moses, uh, Moses is a servant, Jesus is a son, but he He is a servant, right, because On one of the last nights that Jesus was on earth, he washes his disciples' feet. Even Judas, as people have pointed out, this room full of guys, he gets down, uh, gets a basin tile, he washes their dirty feet. And he does it as a, he says, you call me teacher and master, and so I am. He says, but if I've washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He says, I'm showing you That your servants. He was a servant. He took on the form of a servant. But more than that, Jesus is the son of God. And he fully embraced the rescue mission of God, thankfully. So Moses is a narrator. Jesus is the story. He is the story. And our faithfulness is evidenced in our perseverance. But the paradox is that God holds us and keeps us. And he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Never. I'll never leave you or forsake you. So while it talks about if we hold fast, the, the reality is Jesus says, listen, I'm never going to leave you. I'm not ever going to let you go. And so he holds, he holds us. And it's easy to forget that what he really is asking us to do is to simply rest in him, to relax into his salvation. I don't mean to become careless but to relax into the fact that he's rescued us and he loves us. and He He uh, I love how it puts it in the Bible. It says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also through him freely give us all things? If God's for us, who can be against us? The answer is what? Nobody. Nobody. The psalm... Uh, Psalm ninety verse one says, "Forever and ever you've been our home. Forever and ever you've been our home. That you could think about that all day and not get your brain completely around it. It's a phenomenal description of life in God. Even before I knew Him or <clears throat> was uh, or or knew about it, He was working to give me rest and peace. That was His purpose." Even when I was building a life that left him out, I was one time building a life that left God out altogether. Didn't care. Guess what? He was still thinking about me. He, was, he had already built a way for me and made a way for me and made a life. Jesus says, I am the door. He says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. And pasture is just a picture of all that you need, provision, life, hope. We may feel at times like there is no one in the world that cares or no place in the world that we belong, but that's not true according to what we see from who God is. God has propped open the door in Jesus. He's opened up the door. That's the picture and he says, come on in. I want you to enter in. I want you to find grace and peace and hope. And so He's the end of our clamoring and striving. I thought this week, He's not waiting uh, for us to get it together. He is our together. That's what He says. He holds all things together. He's not waiting on you to get it together. Sometimes that's what people think. Man, once I get it together, then I'll come to God. Well, you'll never come to God then because you'll never get it together. He's not waiting for that. He is your together. He's the one that holds it all together. And if if you know this, then be encouraged. But if you haven't responded to God's free offer in Christ, why not today? We see that he's good. And you you could pray something like this if you wanted to say, God, I need you. You could pray something like this. God, I believe that even though my sin has separated me from you, because of Jesus, you have made a way for me to belong. Please forgive me and welcome me back. Something like that. I mean, I, the Bible says that calling on the name of the Lord is an aspect of what it means to be saved. That means prayer. That we begin a pray in life by first asking to be rescued. And because he's good, he's already done everything that's needed to rescue us. going to pray and our musicians will come we're going to have a time of commitment maybe that you would like me to pray with you during this time and i would be happy to do that and if there's a need that you have some other type this is an invitation it says up there commitment response that's what this is for so i invite you to stand with me And I'm going to pray for us quickly. And then if you have a need that I can uh, help you with in prayer, I'd be happy to do that. Father, we're so grateful for who Jesus is and all that the Bible tells us in beautiful portraits like this of what he came to do. And I pray that you'll fill us with hope as we believe. And I pray, Father, that you'll give us boldness to stand with you and for you in this life. And I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.